Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. I'm your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from the AA literature through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. So, this is step 11 in Tradition 11, and the second to the last episode of this podcast. I know I said more than once that I was going to try to figure out a way to move forward with this thing, but as it grew closer uh, to the kind of jumping off point for that, I realized that this just wasn't the direction that I want to go right now. Uh, Some of it very well could just be that I have longevity issues when it comes to projects I start and things that I continue on doing. I do feel that should I end on step 12, which is my plan now, that, uh, you know, I succeeded succeeded in what I wanted to do at the start. I wanted to read through the literature of the AA program. I wanted to read through it as I've read through it, sharing my experience with it and how I digest this material as an atheist. The thing is, is as I've done it this time around, since I've done it before with others, there's just too much of this program any longer that I don't identify with. The shame aspect, the failure idea, the concept of powerlessness. While there is a lot of this program that I think is beneficial to newcomers, beneficial to people that continue to do the program, it isn't one that works for me any longer. So yes, I continue to do aspects of this. I do a daily inventory. I have uh, reaped the rewards of some of this program, but I can't live in the shame and powerlessness that of, of my previous alcoholic drinking. I can't live underneath the idea that I am one false move away from dying, that if I don't continue to do this thing as it's being told to me, uh, that I'm not doing it correctly, that I'm telling other people a path that's going to lead them to drinking and dying, or that I myself might drink myself to death. I can't continue to live with the idea or under the assumption that this is the only way. There is no other way. That should I drink, that I'm a failure of some kind, that I've let people down. I am no closer to drinking than I was when I started this podcast. If, if anything, I'm further away from it. And I say that because I haven't been going to meetings. I haven't been participating in the AA fellowship, as I've said that I would, you know, was drawn to when I first got here. And my desire to drink is no closer than it ever has been. Like, it's no, it's no different. It, it, if anything, like I said, it's further away. And it's not like I live a sheltered life. It's not like I just stay cooped up in my room. I was in an event for four hours where everybody was drinking. Some people were drinking drinks that I used to really enjoy. And I had a fine time, but I still do not have any interest in drinking. I do not have any interest in that lifestyle. I have interest in spending time with my friends. Um, I have created my own fellowship. I have friends. I have people that care about me. I have hobbies that keep me occupied. I, I don't run from my problems. I keep experiencing situations that I used to struggle with, and I don't struggle with them any longer. And the rewards that I was told when I first came into the program remain, even as I move away from it. That doesn't mean that I'm not doing anything. That that also is a part of what I'm kind of like bucking against. This idea that if I'm not in the program, then I am not in recovery and I'm not doing anything. You can still do most of this stuff. A lot of the programs that are out there now revolve around the same kind of ideas and principles. And that does not mean that I'm not in recovery, that I'm not sobri- in sobriety, that I'm not sober, that I'm not leading a good life, that I'm not actionable. 
that I'm not taking responsibility for my my actions, that I'm not continuing to move forward in a better way, you know? That's something I'm kind of moving against, is like greatly moving against. If I don't tie AA to any of that, somehow it doesn't count. It's delegitimized. And I just don't believe that that's the case. I think AA stumbled upon really ob- obviously great principles that AA doesn't have a monopoly on. They themselves have said it. And the organization is great. It does great things for those that need it. Maybe I'll come back to it. I don't know. But with that being said, like it just, that's about a big part of why I'm, you know, I feel kind of like I'm ready to move away from this program, this podcast. Yes, I could transition this podcast into something else, but I, on, I honestly just do not have the time to, to run interviews. I, I get off work at six o'clock at night. My weekends are usually playing catch up. I'm up at six o'clock in the morning. You know, I'm, I'm in bed by 930. It's not a lot of time in there between making dinner, driving home, the small little bit of socializing I do. It's not a lot of time in there for me to schedule 45 minutes to an hour and a half long sessions with people and have the ability to stick to those commitments. And I don't want to try to do it. If I think I were better at organizing, if I were better at like meeting deadlines, I would 100% be all about it. Maybe. I don't know. Honestly, now that I say that, just with how things are right now, it's just not something that I can commit to. It's not something that I can follow up on. That doesn't mean that I'm not working with people. That just means that some of those people might not be suffering from alcoholism. It doesn't mean that I'm not reaching out the hand. It doesn't mean that I'm not helping folks. It just means that maybe I'm not recording a podcast about it. And after this literature, there's not really anything left to read. And there's not really anything left for me to say right now. I, I have already kind of struggled with the fact that I repeat myself a lot. I say a lot of the same stuff. And where where it stands, when this ends on episode 12, I'm not taking it down. It's going to remain the words I've said will remain the transition, the growth I've experienced while, while working on this podcast since July. Uh, it's, you know, it's February now, the, uh, the life events that I've shared, all that stuff remains. All the words that I've expressed about the book exist. There's no reason for me to take it down. It's not like it's going to stop helping the next person who chooses to listen to it. I would hope that as people have come along for this journey, as they get to these last few steps, they themselves have found a path where the podcast isn't even something that needs to be a part of their life. I'm not saying that if I continued, that people wouldn't want to continue to listen. I'm just saying that it served its purpose. And I am satisfied with the fact that I've stuck with this for as long as I have, and I'm seeing it to the end of what originally was going to be the end of the podcast. So that being said, I, you know, that's kind of a check-in, but I do have an actual check-in. So I know some of you folks know, or have heard in previous episodes that I've I've been a part of like some Facebook singles groups. And I'm a part of those groups because they have meetups. That was where I was uh, at last night. It was a bunch of birthdays. I got to see some people I hadn't seen in a little while. And I got to see friends that I actually are my friends, the ones I, I game with and I, I spend time with online, but I don't always get to see face-to-face. So it was good to see some people face-to-face. It was good to kind of just mingle a little bit, get some socializing done. These groups have been good for that. They've also been bad for, at times, my my interest in distracting myself with starting arguments with people. Now, I will admit that I've gotten a hell of a lot better with that, tons and tons better, but I still struggle with it. And case in point, there was a gentleman that was on there that made some weird post that was basically calling everybody in the group narcissists. This is, I've gotten to be where I'm a little protective of the people in this group. I know where we're at. Like the majority of the people in these in these groups they don't want to. They don't want to deal with the the online dating crap. 
They don't want to be alone. They don't want to hang out with their friends who are in relationships. They just want to go out and have a good time without any of the pressures of current modern dating. But they'd like to do it with other singles. And for the most part, most of the people that are in this group have been in the groups for a long time, for years. Some of them are not really experiencing personal growth, and maybe that's part of the reason why they're struggling with relationships. Some of them have just been fucked over and they're not really interested in dating. Some of them have dated, they're great people, and they just haven't found their match, the person that they feel like they could spend their time with. Some of them are assholes. Some of them are shitty people. There's a reason why they're not, they're not really experiencing a lot of luck in the dating pool. Like, it collects a little bit of everybody. Some of the groups are really good at weeding those people out and booting them. One group just lets pretty much anybody come in until it's obvious that they're being legitimately harmful to people. And I've seen them go as far as to, you know, allow people to stay in who have done harm to people. So it's not, it's not always the greatest rand group. Anyways, this guy po- posted basically telling everybody in the group they're, they're pieces of shit, they're narcissists. He had at this point, at this point, been posting regularly, attacking people in their posts, calling them names, putting them down, being derogatory, just lashing out. And I saw the language he was using, and I saw the way that he was like constantly attacking people that seemed happy, it, 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 from a place of familiarity. Like I'd been there, went before I got sober. That you know, that's exactly what I was doing. I was going online and I was I was attacking people. I was starting shit, fighting with people that I didn't have any business like just arguing with. Just starting just just crap just because it was distracting me from whatever it was I was doing inside that I didn't want to deal with. And that's what I saw this guy doing. And that's exactly what I said. You know, like, hey, I, I don't know where any of this is coming from, dude, but you're just taking out a whole bunch of shit you need to deal with on a, on a bunch of strangers. Good people that I know. There's no reason for you to be doing this. And, you know, the answer was always like, well, they could block me and it's not my fault that they're fucking pussies and they're sensitive and, you know, shit like that. Well... We kept going back and forth and I said, look, man, you can keep you can keep lashing out at me, but I just see a sad, you know, kind of pathetic dude right now who who has a lot of hurt inside and doesn't know how to deal with it. And he's just decided that he's going to he's going to attack the world and anybody that comes in his path is going to be a part of that. And of course, you know, he just kept coming back and forth with it, calling me names. Well, he decided to roll into my my private messages and, of course, started right off with some threats, right? saying, I bet $400 you wouldn't say that to my face. And again, mind you, the things I was saying to his face, I have said to convicts. I have stared people down who have murdered other people and said specifically shit just like that. Like, man, this is you're not even mad at me. You're mad at some shit that happened to you a long time ago. You're mad at other people who you feel wronged you. You don't know how to digest that, so you lash out. I've said this shit. I'm not scared of some dude on, on, on Facebook. Like, who, who gives a fuck who this guy is? Like, it still stands. I, I've already said, I don't care about the physicality of people. That doesn't win anything. You know, it's like my my buddy who just, you know, wants to start shit all the time with people and make, make it a big deal. But it's like, do you walk around with a list of people you've beat up just so you can tell everybody else? Look at these people I beat up. These are photos of the guys that I, I knocked out. Like, just constantly having to remind people how you can beat someone up. I mean, physicality means nothing at the end of the day. All physicality should mean is like what you want out of it. Are you wanting to be a better you somehow, like healthier? Fine. Win those goals, you know, beat that mountain, ride that bike, box out those gloves. But once you start like pushing that physicality on other people, you're just a fucking bully. There's no, 
there's no winning at stake unless it's a competition that both parties agree to. And even then it's like, unless it's in a ring, if you're doing this shit out in the streets, man, I, I, I did time with folks that, that were in there for years because of that shit. Someone bonks their head and, and they're in prison for nine years. It's fucking crazy to me. Someone's dead and someone else is in prison because someone, two people just couldn't fucking talk shit out and decide that fighting is the only solution. That's what men do. Men fight sometimes and in prison for a long time because they refuse to fucking have seven sentence words. Fuck off. Like, it doesn't mean anything to me. I don't care if someone can beat me up. At the end of the day, they're still an asshole. Right? Like, I mean, unless something's really changing and agitation's really taking place, fighting means nothing. Literally nothing. You want to shoot people because they don't agree with you? Well, fuck off with that, too. Like, if you... It just doesn't mean anything to me. But I'll tell you what. There's still a part of me, absolutely, that is still still challenged enough by that when people start spouting off. And, you know, it, it's like that. there's a lot of insults I can listen to, really, Dude was calling me a cuck, calling me a soy boy. And I'm like, I mean, synthetic testosterone comes from soy. Like, how bad is soy? Like, how is that an insult? Fucking, you know, just you, you're, you're typing all this from your mama's basement. Uh, just all this weird stuff, this this rhetoric, like rolling the dice, rolling the, the, the right. I got to go work at my real job. Dude doesn't know where I work. I don't know why he was even saying shit like that. But it's just imagined. He's like, I can't believe you don't have a man bun. You fit the mold. The most unoriginal just checklists of garbage insults, just these trolley insults. But he kept pushing the whole, like, meet me in the parking lot shit. And yeah, there was a part of me that's like, let's do it, dude. Let's fucking do it. Name the parking lot. I'll be there in 20 minutes. What the fuck am I going to do there? I've never fought anybody. Yeah, I'm, I'm fucking big. But what does that even mean? I've seen little dudes knock out big dudes just because I've been working out a little bit. I've got some size back on me. What the fuck, man? There's no indicator. Now, granted, I looked at his Facebook pictures. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, at the very least, I could beat him in an arm wrestle match. But who knows? Again, we're back to do I want to potentially do time because some dude in my Facebook instant, instant messenger is saying mean things? And the fact that I was even physically reacting that way, and that's what it was. It was a physical emotion that was making me want to like, yeah, let's, let's beat some ass. Um, but that's what it all came down to. Like this dude was so mad about what I was saying that he was willing to fight over it because he didn't have any other defense against it. He didn't have any words for it. He didn't understand or refuse to regulate his emotions around it. All he could react to is beating ass. And it was so weird that he was saying it in a way that was like, I'm calling him angry and upset and sad and unable to deal with it and his proof for that was to try to beat me up and i pointed that out to him it's like we're we're at an impasse man like you've reached a point to where you're so offended by what i was saying that you're willing to threaten me with with a beat down in the fred meyer parking lot at 10 o'clock tonight like do you hear yourself and the the big takeaway was that even though i've never really like prescribed to the idea of physicality I, I'm, I was kind of interested when he, when he came around to this idea of like, well, fine, meet to meet at this gym that I train at, which I think is still bullshit. There's no way this dude's training at a fucking gym. Krav Maga is what he was saying. He, he teaches Krav Maga. I'm like, well, if you're teaching Krav Maga and you're doing this shit in people's Facebook comments, maybe you shouldn't be, maybe you should take a few more lessons yourself. But, but anyways, he's like, yeah, just come down to the gym. And I was like getting dressed. <laughs> I was like, all right, where's the gym? What time do you want to meet? Just out of curiosity at this point, 
like it still wouldn't have meant anything. At the end of the day, like it would have changed a single thing. But there was also this idea of like, you know, getting knocked around doesn't sound terrible. I'm sure it's not any fun. It's not something I'm still going to want to put myself in a position for. But it reminds me of when I was talking to my old sponsor and he's like, you need you need you need to think about getting into some kind of training where you're getting knocked around a little bit. Some jujitsu or some, you know, Krav Maga, I guess, or some other kind of training where you're just rolling around with someone and you're working out a lot of this stuff, this bodily emotion that, that, you know, you feel like maybe you've gotten all out of you, but maybe you're still there, you know, lifting weights kind of does a lot of that. Um, video games does that sometimes, but you know, there is, there is a part of me that still just, I guess it identifies enough with kind of that machismo aspect that, yeah, it'd be cool to get in a ring with someone and just throw some gloves around. I, I have no ego there. I know I'd probably get my ass beat because I just don't know how to fight. And just because I have size on me doesn't mean anything. But the idea of doing it with someone who's coming from the same place of just like we're working through something, you know, maybe that we don't even know is there. And so anyways, so this weird fucking interaction, this bizarre interaction, we get down to where we're almost communicating like humans. He's He's like apologized at this point which caught me off guard. So I, you know, changed my tone and started reacting accordingly. It was apologizing back for, for not trying to at least listen to the dude a little bit more. He's talking about how he, he lost his dad. He's got a blood clot. He's scared. He doesn't know what he's doing with himself. And I think we're making ground. I think we're making ground. And then he hits me with like this weird, I'm, and I'll be honest, I'm still like, can we still go to the gym? <laughs> like, even though we're on this common ground. So like, maybe, Maybe now I met some dude that just needs to work through some shit. And then I can also just see what happens when I step into a match with someone like just fucking out of curiosity at this point. Yes, there is. Okay. I'll say there's a little bit of slight ego. I'm six, four, weigh 240 pounds. I have, I have a reasonable size. I'm not just carry I'm not he- like heavy, heavy, but I'm, you know, I'm a fairly large, large dude. Uh, and he looks like he's like five, eight skinny fat, you know, buck 70 or something like that. There's a little bit of ego there where I was hoping I could step into the ring with him and see that look on his face when he's like, fuck, man, I should probably reconsider starting shit with people online. But I'm not very intimidating looking, even though I've got some size on me. I've got a very nice face. Like my face is like just a nice guy face. Like there's no anger face for me. Like even when I make an angry face, like it only affects a very, very, very small proportion of the population. I am not an intimidating person, but I can't help but feel that like twinge of, you know, It'd be cool to get in the ring and like this dude realize even if he can fight, I'm going to make him fucking work for it. And even if I do lose, it's not going to be an easy loss, hopefully. But so regardless, but of course, man, this shit just is still in there somewhere, even though I've never fought. Really, I had a couple altercations when I was in prison, but, you know, luckily it was between two people that know what the fuck they were doing and it ended quickly. So I feel like we're making common ground and then he just comes out of nowhere and he's like, he, he keeps doing these underhanded snide like just weird comments man they just and this is not even all that super important anymore but basically he started talking about having a concealed weapon and how he he had talked to people like i was talking to people and he'd caught some bullets and and i was like dude you came in swinging you're talking you're throwing insults you're making threats and i have repeated the same thing i've told you multiple times i'm not happy to tell you to your face but you keep talking about guns and 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 coming back to threats dude like i don't know how you're trying to tell me i came at you sideways uh, but I, I made the right choice. I just ended the conversation. I blocked the dude. Like, there's no reason for me to continue to talk to this guy. His comments were fucking weird. Like, they just were. And at first, it just seemed like a guy that was struggling. But then it just seemed like a guy that was, like, coming from another place, maybe. Maybe a little bit of struggle, but maybe some other places. 
And I don't, I don't need to be dealing with fucking that kind of crazy right now ever. But, you know, I've been regurgitating and, and looking back on parts of it, parts of that altercation. One, you know, he did ask, why are you even, why are you still talking to me? Why even respond? And a part of it was that, yeah, I just saw a dude that was struggling at first. I just saw a dude that was struggling with their identity, didn't know what they were, what they were really trying to do and were lashing out at the world around them because they had a lot of stuff inside that they just didn't know how to deal with. That's what I saw. So I kind of hoped I was reaching somebody, you know, I didn't think they would actually listen to what I was saying, but I did hope that whatever it was I was saying would resonate maybe later. Like, oh man, this is like the third person who's told me that maybe I should just talk to a therapist or something. Maybe it's reasonable to just fucking stop being such an asshole all the fucking time to literally everybody around me. Maybe that's a good ask. So I did, you know, and that's what I told him. Like, you know, guys just have this tendency to just bottle all this shit up or they just lash out in anger and they start shit with people online or they start shit with people at the bar or at work or at home or whatever. And we're more likely to kill ourselves over it than anybody else. So, yeah, you know, thought maybe you might listen to some reason. But that's not the case. He wanted to stick in his, his anger and whatever other weird shit was piled in with that. And so I left walking away feeling like I was fairly close to letting some dude goad me into a physical altercation just because of curiosity. It's not the first time I've been curious about that. So I've been looking at gyms. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm in a good place financially. You know, I do still want to save and get my own place, but I'm also kind of like I could do some cool shit right now and, and probably still save. If I'm careful with my money, I could join a gym and do something like that with myself and maybe have that be the kind of distraction I need to, to really just finish out working on myself to, to roll, you know, roll all that stuff into one. Cause there's still an aspect of me that's still kind of left unfinished. If I can, I can be riled up. I wasn't even mad. That's the thing I need to really make sure I'm put, I'm getting across. I was never upset with this guy. There wasn't a place where I was like, fuck this dude. I'm going to find him and beat his ass. It was more like, I mean, if that's what this guy thinks he needs, let's do it. And then we'll go from there. Like I was maybe thinking it might reach him while also allowing me to just kind of break through that, that weird curiosity I have of like, what would happen if I did get into a fight with somebody? Uh, we're weird, man. Humans are weird creatures. Just fucking a step up from apes, you know? All right, let's look at the daily stock for today. February 8th. Did that make you feel better? You cry, I am suffering severe pain. Are you then relieved from feeling it if you bear it in an unmanly way? Seneca, Moral Letters, 78, 17. The next time someone gets upset near you, crying, yelling, breaking something, being pointed or cruel, watch how quickly this statement will stop them cold. I hope this is making you feel better. Because of course it isn't. Only in the bubble of extreme emotion can we justify any of that kind of behavior. And when called to account for it, we usually feel sheepish or embarrassed. It's worth applying that standard to yourself. The next time you find yourself in the middle of a freakout or moaning and groaning with flu-like symptoms or crying tears of regret, just ask, is this actually making me feel better? Is this actually relieving any of the symptoms I wish were gone? I mean, this honestly can fit with what I was even just talking about a few minutes ago where, and that was at one time, one of the things I asked the dude that was trying to star shit with me. Like, is this helping you at all? Is this making you feel any better? Is this relieving that pain that you feel inside? If it is, why why are you still having to do it? Like, why are you still having to lash out at people? If it worked, it would work. But what I would say is probably don't do that. 
I mean, I guess that depends on the relationship you have with the person you're saying it to. Maybe a significant other that might not be a good idea. Uh, it might be for like your kids. I used to say stuff like that to my ex's son who would be throwing a fit. And I would just simply ask, is this helping? And I wouldn't ask in a sarcastic or shitty way. I would just ask him if it's helping. And almost always he was like, no, no, this isn't helping. And I would ask, okay, well, why are you doing it? And, you know, for an eight-year-old, it's easy for him to just explain it away as I don't know. But if you were to try to hit an adult with that right in the middle of their emotions, like that's probably not going to be the best like time for that. But I do see this being a healthy thing to do for yourself. It has helped me a lot. There's been plenty of times where I've been like mid emotional freak out and I've thought, is this is this helpful? Is yelling at people helpful? Is throwing a fit helpful? Is this fixing anything? Then why why even bother with it? It's just a waste of energy. I am wasting my time with this. I can continue to feel this emotion without the freak out and then decide what to do next. The freak out does not relieve it. It doesn't make it better. I mean, I used to be bad about this when I was younger. When I was a teenager, you know, I was the kind of kid that would like go into the locker rooms or something and bang shit around and throw stuff and, and hit things. And no, it never helped. It never helped. If anything, I was always left with something like a, a scar on my hand or a broken bone or something. And the pain and, and stuff was either still there or I didn't actually digest it in any kind of a healthy way and it would just return. Um, when we talk about like regrets and stuff, you know, while we're working through the early stages of recovery and we talk about this idea of resentment and regrets, you know, the, the idea of resentments is kind of a freak out. If, if the, the image or the thought of someone brings up this like this bodily hatred, you know, that is that helping is is allowing that to be a trigger helping. No. Well, I mean, probably not. And if and if it's not, then it's time to really consider looking at it in a different way and not not allowing yourself to freak out. If the result is the same, why bother freaking out? And oftentimes the freak out usually makes things worse. Worse in driving. There's plenty of times where I've probably gotten really close to an accident because I've gotten super upset at someone in front of me doing something fucking stupid and I want to race around them. There's no real value in that. If anything, I'm scared the shit out of other people now. Now I'm the one that they're like, what the fuck is this asshole doing? <laughs> right? So I'm just like compounding the problem. The same with being at home. If when I was yelling and screaming at people when I was younger, all I did was scare people, make them upset. It did, did nothing for me. Did no, no good to me. So I don't know. I, I really like this very simple, you know, thought like, but I do like it from more of the angle of looking at it internally, maybe not looking at what other people are doing with themselves and then calling them out on it mid freak out. It might not be a good idea. All right. Step 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Well, how in the fuck do I do that as an atheist? What process could I even apply to myself as an atheist that would be even similar to this? I mean, prayer is out the window. Meditation, maybe not. But if you're like me, meditation is fucking damn near impossible. And I can hear people saying, well, you just need to practice it. Well, sure, man, I could probably practice playing the guitar and get better at that too, but it doesn't mean it's any easier to do it. Plenty of things you practice at, you get better at. Being able to sit down and actually do it is another thing entirely. I think we've gone over that I definitely have some hardcore ADHD uh, fucking attention issues. And a part of that is like just not being able to sit and do fuck, fuck all uh, while I allow my body to not latch on to whatever. And I've done guided meditation and there was a time where it was kind of easy for me to wake up in the morning and like give myself a couple minutes before just jotting out the door. But it is absolutely unnatural and it is impossible right now for me to even consider it. I know nothing's impossible. Nothing's impossible. 
I'm just putting that label on myself and I'm creating, uh, you know, a barrier that doesn't have to be there. But I'm telling you right now, there's just too much noise in my brain. And if I could shut that noise off, I wouldn't be considering consulting a doctor about ADHD medication. I would just shut it off. So it's kind of one of those like gaslighty things for me when people are like, well, you're just not trying hard enough to meditate. It's like, no, man, like I have tried. It just does not work for me. My brain does not allow that. There is too much going on in my brain at all times. Yes, maybe through practice, I could probably silence that. But I'm going to tell you right now that it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be something that's going to just take hold uh, immediately. And I could end up doing that work for absolutely nothing, which has been the case in the past. So uh, for me, this is a very difficult step. While I don't necessarily meditate the way that a lot of people probably do, I do allow myself to collect my thoughts and my emotions around different topics. Like instance, again, what I was talking about earlier with this guy wanting to go, you know, fucking march on down there and, and, and see what happens. I didn't react to that. I didn't say any of that to him. While I didn't pray or meditate, I did pause while agitated. I did roll those thoughts around in my head and really look at them. And what this for me means is that pause while agitated. It means to just hold off for a second, look at the bigger picture, look at like play the tapes out. Look at what this is really going to get me. Ask myself, is this helping? Ask myself what would help. Look at like how this is going to affect multiple people rather than just how it's going to affect me and appease some small portion of my emotional state and then act accordingly. That's where step 11 kind of works for me. Prayer and meditation are our principal means of conscious contact with God. We AAs are active folk enjoying the satisfactions of dealing with the realities of life, usually for the first time in our lives, and strenuously trying to help the next alcoholic who comes along. So it isn't surprising that we often tend to slight serious meditation and prayer as something not really necessary. To be sure, we feel it's something that might help us to meet an occasional emergency, but at first many of us are apt to regard it as a somewhat mysterious skill of clergymen, from which we may hope to get a secondhand benefit. Or perhaps we don't believe in these things at all. To certain newcomers and to those one-time agnostics who still cling to the AA group as their higher power, claims for the higher power of prayer may, despite all logic and experience and proof of it, still be unconvincing or quite objectionable. Or <laughs> a proof of it? Proof of what? Like prayer? We got that now? We got some proof of prayer somewhere? Someone can roll that out for me? Catalog some proof? Those of us who once felt we... This way can certainly understand and sympathize. We will remember how something deep inside us kept rebelling against the idea of bowing before any god. Maybe many of us had strong logic too, which proved there was no god whatever. What about all the accidents, sickness, cruelty, and injustice in the world? What about all those unhappy lives which were the direct result of unfortunate birth and uncontrollable circumstances? Surely there could be no justice in this scheme of things, and therefore no god at all. I agree. Sometimes we took a slightly different tact. Sure, we said to ourselves, the hen probably did come before the egg. No doubt the universe had a first cause of some sort, the god of the atom, maybe hot and cold by turns, but certainly there wasn't any evidence of a god who knew or cared about human beings. We liked AA all right, and were quick to say that it had done miracles, but we recoiled from meditation and prayer as obstinately as the scientist who refused to perform a certain experiment, lest it prove his pet theory wrong. Of course, we finally did experiment, and when unexpected results followed, we felt in, we felt different. In fact, we knew different, and so we were, to, we were sold on the meditation and prayer. And that, we had found, can happen to anybody who tries. It has been well said that almost the only scoffers at prayer are those who never tried it enough. And we're back to the idea that you're only an atheist because you haven't tried hard enough. 
This is so fucking, this is it. This is what I'm talking about. This is what has me so fucking exhausted. I'm not exhausted of the idea of the, 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 the full idea of, of AA, but man, this shit just, I see why so many people who are atheists just leave this program, man. I see why they find a different program entirely. I see why they made their own AA without this literature, but I still see the value in reading these things and then formulating that plan. I don't see the value in just making that decision without actually giving this shit a try as it's written. But no, I don't feel like I haven't tried hard enough and that's why prayer didn't work for me. Those of us who have come to re make regular use of prayer would no more do it without it than we would refuse air, food, or sunshine. And for the same reason, when we refuse air, light, or food, the body suffers. See, I'm just in suffrage because I'm not praying. I'm just suffering unnecessarily. And when we turn away from meditation and prayer, we likewise deprive our minds, our emotions, and our intuitions of vitality, needed, vitally needed support. As the body can fail its purpose for lack of nourishment, so can the soul. If you believe in a soul, I guess, we all need the light of God's reality, the nourishment of his strength, and the atmosphere of his grace. To an amazing extent, the facts of AA life confirm this ageless truth. I don't know how that could be true. There is a direct linkage among self-examination, meditation, and prayer. Now this I do understand. Meditation does have a lot of like, there is research done around meditation and just meditating before certain tasks can help you be more cognizantly capable of doing those tasks. I get all that. That definitely has, has some value, but it doesn't mean that there's a fucking God involved in any of that. Taken separately, these practices can bring much relief and benefit. But when they are logically related and interwoven, the result is an unshakable foundation for life. Now and then, we may be granted a glimpse of that ultimate reality, which is God's kingdom. And we will be confronted, or excuse me, comforted and assured that our own destiny in that realm will be secure for so long as we try, however falteringly, to find and do the will of our own creator. As we have seen, self-searching is the means by which we bring new vision, action, and grace to bear upon the dark and negative side of our natures. It is a step in the development of that kind of humility that makes it possible for us to receive God's help. Yet it is only a step. We will want to go further. We will want the good that is in us all, even in the worst of us, to flower and to grow. Most certainly, we shall need bracing air and an abundance of food. But first of all, we shall want sunlight. Nothing much can grow in the dark. Meditation is our step out into the sun. How then shall we meditate? The actual experience of meditation and prayer across the centuries is, of course, immense. The world's libraries and places of worship are a treasure trove for all seekers. It is to be hoped that every AA who has a religious connection which emphasizes meditation will return to the practice of that devotion as never before. But what about the rest of us who, less fortunate, don't even know how to begin? Well, we might start like this. First, let's look at a really good prayer. We won't have far to seek. The great men and women of all religions have left us a wonderful supply. Here, let us consider one that is classic. Its author was a man who for several hundred years now has been rated as a saint. We won't be biased or scared off by that fact because although he's not an alcoholic, he did, like us, go through the emotional ringer. And as he came out the other side of that painful experience, this prayer was his expression of what, we could, what he could then see, feel, and wish to become. Now remember, this is not a religious program, and it's not a Christian one. But here's a Christian guy and a Christian prayer, and the meditation I'm going to tell you about is all about Christian stuff. Lord, make me a channel of thy peace, that where there is hatred I may bring love, that where there is wrong I may bring the spirit of forgiveness, that where there is discord I may bring harmony, that where there is error I may bring truth, that where there is doubt I may bring faith. That where there is despair, I may bring hope. 
that where there are shadows, I may bring light, that where there is sadness, I may bring joy. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved. For it is by self-forgetting that one finds. It is by forgiving that one is forgiven. It is by dying that one awakens to eternal life. Amen. Now, I have said before that there is some value in saying certain things out loud. There is a lot of value in that. No different than there's a lot of value in writing it by hand with pen and paper. And so if there is anything to be said about prayer, it's the idea of saying these things out loud. Some people call it manifesting, whatever. It's not really, to me, it's not that kind of a metaphysical thing. It's really just solidifying it in yourself. It's no different than how we learn. A lot of people learn kinetically, but we also learn by being told and we learn by being shown. Some people can learn just by reading a book. Some people can't. It's no different than, than this kind of a process. Saying it out loud solidifies it within yourself. It's not calling upon a fucking deity to do it for you. Maybe you believe that, whatever. I don't. I don't think it has anything to do with that. Obviously, I've said that plenty of times for people to kind of know where I'm at with that sort of thing. So while I think the idea of prayer as a direct channel to a deity who is in charge of billions of people on the planet and lets a lot of shit go uh, unchecked regularly, whether they pray for it or not, and this usually comes with the idea that if you beg correctly, then you'll get what you're asking for. And if you don't get what you're asking for, well, then, you know, that's what you really deserved. Anyways, whatever. There is still value in saying these kinds of things out loud. When I was really struggling with how I talked to myself, the things I said out loud were, I am not stupid. I am not worthless. I deserve love. I would say these kind of things out loud. As I grew in the program and as I grew away from the program, whatever you want to call it, you know, the things I say now are... I need to do better for people. I need to do better for myself. I need to get up and get moving and get organized and make active changes in my life. I need to do the things I said I was going to do. Like these are the things I say aloud now. And I say them in, a, in, in my car or I say them in the shower. I say them on my way to work. I say them, you know, before bed. So yeah, I guess that is a prayer in the sense that I'm saying something out loud to a universe that may not be listening but really it's just for me it's to solidify it with myself. As beginners in meditation, we might now reread this prayer several times very slowly, savoring every word and trying to take in the deep meaning of each phrase and idea. It will help if we can drop all resistance to our friend says, to what our friend says, for in meditation, debate has no place. We rest quietly with the thoughts of someone who knows so that we may experience and learn. As though lying upon a sunlit beach, let us relax and breathe deeply of the spiritual atmosphere with which the grace of this prayer surrounds us. Let us become willing to partake and be strengthened and lifted up by the sheer spiritual power, beauty, and love of which these magnificent words are the carriers. Let us look now upon the sea and ponder what, it, ponder what its mystery is, and let us lift our lives to the far horizon, beyond which we shall seek all these wonders still unseen. And remember, if nothing happens, you didn't do this right. If you get nothing out of this, it's because you failed. It's your fault. You didn't try hard enough. Shucks, says somebody, this is nonsense. It isn't practical. When such thoughts break in, we might recall a little ruefully how much store we used to set by imagination as it tried to create reality out of bottles. Yes, we, 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 yes, we reveled in that sort of thinking, didn't we? And though sober nowadays, don't we often try to do much the same thing? Perhaps our trouble was not that we used our imagination. Perhaps the real trouble was that our most total inability to point imagination toward the right objectives. There's nothing the matter with constructive imagination. All sound achievements rest upon it. 
After all, no man can build a house until he first envisions a plan for it. Well, meditation is like that. It helps to envision our spiritual objective before we try to move forward. So let's get back to that sunlit beach or to the plains or to the mountains, if you prefer. And I do agree with that. This kind of meditation, the things you say out loud to yourself, the way that you can apply this to some, you know, to yourself if you're an atheist is kind of pre-planning, constructive imagination. I do like that. I like how that that's worded. It is to formulate an idea or a goal or a mindset that you seek and then put into words the thing that you're trying to achieve and then go for it. When, by such simple devices, we have placed ourselves in a mood in which we can focus undisturbed on constructive imagination, we might proceed like this. Once more, we read our prayer and again try to see what its inner essence is. We'll think now about the man who first uttered the prayer. First of all, he wanted to become a channel. Then he asked for the grace to bring love, forgiveness, harmony, truth, faith, hope, light, and joy to every human being he could. Next came the expression of an aspiration and a hope for himself. He hoped, God willing, that he might be able to find some of these treasures too. This he would try to do by what he called self-forgetting. What did he mean by self-forgetting, and how did he propose to accomplish that? He thought it better to give comfort than to receive it, better to understand than to be understood, better to forgive than to be forgiven. And that's that's a very humble and noble place to come from. And I can I cannot fault somebody for that. Even though I might not believe their religious predilections, I can definitely uh, see someone for who they are if what they're trying to accomplish is to put out more than they're asking of the world. That is definitely how I would prefer to live my life. This much could be a fragment of what is called meditation, perhaps our very first attempt at a mood, a flyer into the realm of spirit, if you like. It ought to be followed by a good look at where we stand now and a further look at what might happen in our lives were we able to move closer to the ideal we've been trying to glimpse. Meditation is something which can always be further developed. It has no boundaries, either of width or height. Aided by such instruction and example as we can find it, it is essentially an individual adventure, something which each one of us works out in his own way. But its object is always the same, to improve our conscious contact with God, with his grace, wisdom, and love. And let's always remember that meditation is in reality intensely practical. One of its first fruits is emotional balance. With it, we can broaden and deepen the channel between ourselves and God as we understood him. Now, what of prayer? I thought we were talking about prayer. Prayer is the raising of the heart and mind of God. And in this sense, it includes meditation. How may we go about it? And how does it fit in with meditation? Prayer, as commonly understood, is a petition to God. Having opened our channel as best we can, we try to ask for those right things of which we and others are in the greatest need. And we think that the whole range of our needs is well defined by that part of step 11, which says knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. In the morning, we think of our of the hours to come. Perhaps we think of our day's work and the chances it may afford us to be useful and helpful or of some special problem that it may bring. Possibly today we will see a continuation of a serious and as yet unresolved problem left over from yesterday. Our immediate temptation will be to ask for specific solutions to specific problems and for the ability to help other people as we have already thought they should be helped. So I look at this more of like a disassociation kind of practice. When I wake up and I still have an issue that's that's unresolved from yesterday, I try to separate it from like the bodily emotions that I have and just look at what might be the most practical solution, whether it affects me or not. Usually that might mean just directly confronting the person and letting them know, hey, I fucked up and I apologize for that. Or it means just allowing the other person room to, you know, feel that their ego is being placated in some way. Depends on the situation. 
It's not my job to make people feel a certain way. It's not my job to fix anybody. It's only my job to own the parts of me that I need to own and go about my, ba- my day in a, in a better way. So disassociating myself from the emotion that's tied to some of the things that I might be still holding onto from the night before is, I guess, kind of what they're saying here, a, a, a sort of prayer or a meditation. Our immediate temptation will be to ask, uh, therefore, we ought to consider each request carefully to see what its real merit is. Even so, when making specific requests, it will be well to add to each one of them this qualification. If it be thy will. We ask simply that throughout the day, God place in us the best understanding of his will that we can have for that day, and that we be given the grace by which we may carry it out. As the day goes on, we can pause where situations must be met and decisions made, and renew the simple request. Thy will not mine be done. If at these points our emotional disturbance happens to be great, we will more surely keep our balance, provided we remember and repeat to ourselves a particular prayer or phrase that is appealed to us in our reading or meditation. Just saying it over and over will often enable us to clear a channel choked up with anger, fear, frustration, or misunderstanding, and permit us to return to the surest help of all, our search for God's will, not our own, in the moment of stress. At these critical moments, if we remind ourselves that it is better to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, and to love than to be loved, we will be following the intent of step 11. Other people first. That's kind of what I'm getting from this. Of course, it is reasonable and understandable that the question is often asked, why can't we take a specific and troubling dilemma straight to God and in prayer secure from him sure and definite answers to our requests? Because he's not real. This can be done, but it has hazards. We have seen AAs ask with much earnestness and faith for God's explicit guidance on matters ranging all the way from a shattering domestic or financial crisis to correcting a minor personal fault like tardiness. Quite often, however, the thoughts that seem to come from God are not answers at all. Who would know that? But okay. They prove to be well-intentioned, unconscious rationalizations, which is exactly what I look for. The AA, or indeed any man who tries to run his life rigidly by this kind of prayer, by this self-serving demand of God for replies, is a particularly disconcerting individual. To any questioning or criticism of his actions, he instantly proffers his reliance upon prayer for guidance in all matters, great or small. He may have forgotten the possibility that his own wishful thinking and the human tendency to rationalize have distorted this so-called guidance. With the best of intentions, he tends to force his will, his own will into all sorts of situations and problems with the comfort assurance that he is acting under God's specific direction. Under such an illusion, he can, of course, create great havoc without in the least intending it. How, how do you know? How do you know? How do you know that you're asking right? How do people know that they're asking right? It's so weird. We also fall into another similar situation, temptation, excuse me. We form ideas as to what we think God's will is for other people. We say to ourselves, this one ought to be cured of his fatal malady, or that one ought to be relieved of his emotional pain. And we pray for these specific things. Such prayers, of course, are fundamentally good acts, but often they are based upon a uh, supposition that we know God's will for the person for whom we pray. This means that side by side with the earnest prayer, there can be a certain amount of presumption and conceit in us. It is AA's experience that particularly in these cases, we ought to pray that God's will, whatever it is, be done for others as well for ourselves. In AA, we have found that the actual results of prayer be beyond question. They are matters of knowledge and experience. All those who have persisted have found strength, not ordinarily their own. They have found wisdom beyond their usual capability and they have increasingly found a peace of mind which can stand firm in the face of difficult circumstances. 
we discover that we do receive guidance for our lives to just about the extent that we stop making demands upon God to give us an order and on our terms. Almost any experienced AA will tell how his affairs have taken remarkable and unexpected turns for the better as he tried to improve his conscious contact with God. He will also report that out of every reason of grief or suffering, when the hand of God seemed heavy or even unjust, new lessons for living were learned, new resources of courage were uncovered, and that finally, inescapably, the conviction came, God does move in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. That's a sentence. That's an actual sentence. I guess. All this should be very encouraging news for those who recoil from prayer because they don't believe in it, or because they feel themselves cut off from God's help and direction. It. This is where I'm like, you guys didn't even offer an alternative. You said this is the only way that you can go about this, and if you don't, you're doing this wrong. That's where I'm like, fuck you. That's not how, that's not how any of this works. Offer another solution, which I have. You know, the, the, just getting this stuff out of you and asking the universe to just reaffirm inside you what you believe is right is is a form of this without having it be spiritual uh in a, in a sense that it's metaphysical but they just can't even offer that the only the only offer is well if you continue to do it the way you have been you're doing it wrong this is the only way that we have on the table and if you don't do it this way you're fucking gonna die <laughs> it's, uh, anyways all of us, without exception, pass through times when we can pray only with the greatest exertion of will. Occasionally, we go even further than this. We are seized with a rebellion so sickening that we simply can't pray. When these things happen, we should not think too ill of ourselves. We should simply resume prayer as soon as we can, doing what we know to be good for us. Which, for me, is never. Right? I mean, if I never pray, I guess that's what's good for me. Perhaps one of the greatest rewards of meditation and prayer is the sense of belonging that comes to us. We no longer live in a completely hostile world. We are no longer lost and frightened and purposeless. This is this. So I know what he's trying to say here, but this is one of those where like, if you're not feeling this, then you're again, you're doing it wrong. You haven't achieved. This is the only signifier that you have achieved prayer and meditation of what they're talking about. The moment we catch even a glimpse of God's will, the moment we begin to see truth, justice, and love as the real and external, eternal things in life, we are no longer deeply disturbed by all the seeming evil evidence to the contrary that surrounds us in purely human affairs. We know that God lovingly watches over us. We know that when we turn to him, all will be well with us here and hereafter. So I'm going to disagree. I think that we find out that we are working this stuff uh, relatively to the way that it should be. Because we stopped doing stupid shit when we used to. We replaced terrible uh, terrible thinking with better thinking and terrible actions with better actions. We pause when agitated. We play the tape. We think things through. We act accordingly. That's how we know we're doing this shit right. Tradition 11. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. I actually really like this one because the idea is that if it is really working, then people are just going to show up to it. You don't need to sell it. That's what um, based on attraction rather than promotion means to me. They're not running ads on Facebook. They're not running ads on TV. In fact, they prefer that they weren't ran. They prefer that people don't do that. Unlike some of these fucking gurus who show up on my Facebook and my TikTok and whatever else, constantly pushing whatever fucking program they're selling, literally selling, and somehow they end up getting some kind of a, a social pass for doing this kind of shit. And then there's still all this like culty hatred towards AA. Whatever issues I might have for this program, the fact that they don't sell it is, is kind of an indicator that maybe they're not in it for money. 
Without its legion of well-wishers, AA could never have grown as it has. Throughout the world, immense and favorably public, favorable publicity of every description has been the principal means of bringing alcoholics into our fellowship. In AA offices, clubs, and homes, telephones ring constantly. One voice says, I read a piece in the newspaper. Another, we heard a radio program. And still another, we saw a moving picture. Or, we saw something about AA on television. It is no exaggeration to say that half of AA's membership has been led to us through channels like these. The inquiring voices are not all alcoholics or their families. Doctors read medical papers about Alcoholics Anonymous and call for more information. Clergymen see articles in their church journals and also make inquiries. Employers learn that great corporations have set their approval upon us and wish to discover what can be done about alcoholism in their own uh, firms. And I mean, I would add that most rehab programs use a 12-step program. They, they all use some variation of AA. And they use AA as sort of like a linchpin where they lead people after the rehab. Therefore, a great responsibility fell upon us to develop the best possible public relations policy for Alcoholics Anonymous. Through many painful experiences, we think we have arrived at what that policy ought to be. It is the opposite in many ways of usual promotional practice. We found that we had to rely upon the principle of attraction rather than of promotion. Let's see how these two con uh, contrasting ideas, attraction and promotion, work out. A political party wishes to win an election. So it advertises the virtues of its leadership to draw votes. A worthy charity wants to raise money. Forthwith, its leatherhead shows the name of every distinguished person whose support can be obtained. Much of the political, economic, and religious life of the world is dependent upon publicized leadership. People who symbolize causes and ideas fill a, human need, uh, a deep human need. We of AA do not question that. But we do have to soberly face the fact that being in the public eye is hazardous, especially for us. We of AA do not question that, but we do have to soberly face the fact that being the public eye is hazardous, especially for us. By temperament, nearly every one of us had been an irresponsible promoter, and the prospect of a society composed almost entirely of promoters was frightening. Considering this explosive factor, we knew we had to exercise self-restraint. The way this restraint paid off was startling. It resulted in more favorable publicity of Alcoholics Anonymous than could possibly have been obtained through all the arts and abilities of AA's best press agents, I guess. Obviously, AA had to be publicized somehow, so we resorted to the idea that it would be far better to let our friends do this for us. Precisely what has happened, to an unbelievable extent. Veteran newsmen, trained doubters that they are, have gone all out to carry AA's message. To them, we are something more than the source of good stories. On almost every news front, the men and women of the press have attached themselves to us as friends. I don't know if that's still true. There's not really a lot of like media coverage on AA. Obviously, it's fucking old now. But I will say that there's probably a, a healthy mix of promoters, uh, despite their detractors. I mean, there is, there's a growing a very small but growing um, movement of folks that are super anti-AA, like a whole like m podcast type. Um, every episode is, is against AA, kind of anti-AA. To me, it's really funny because like that's now their identity. This guy's sober out of like this, this dude who runs this anti-AA thing is sober basically out of spite just to prove AA wrong. And like his whole life is dedicated to the removal of AA as a, as a program. It, the way he talks about it, like it's some big giant conspiracy. So there's a little bit of that. And then there's, you know, there's, like I said, rehabs that are still talking about AA. They still use a 12 step model. They still, you know, kind of push people towards going to meetings when they get out of their rehab. They're very, very expensive rehab. And it is to me, it's kind of here's the thing. You got these very expensive rehabs 
And each one of these rehabs has like a different different method of helping people sort of like blast through the early parts of the sobriety. But they're almost all based on 12-step work. They're almost all based on AA, and they all rely on that to be what people follow afterwards. So you're basically paying all this money to just take this prolonged shitty vacation somewhere and have them teach you AA stuff and do it in like a CBT kind of a method where you're interrupting each other and like all kinds of crosstalk. And then people, I've heard so many stories about people like, like all the drama that's associated with that. And the fact that they're usually co-ed. So you end up with like these relationships that form out of it in an unhealthy way. And there's people that have gone to rehab and have found like health there. They've, they've found sobriety there and they've never had an issue since. But almost everybody that I've heard who has talked about going wishes they had just gone to a meeting. Um, but yeah, that kind of returns me to the idea that there are other programs out there and it's very strange that rehabs will still tend to push AA just because it's well-known. In the beginning, the press could not understand our refusal of all personal publicity. They were genuinely baffled by our insistence upon anonymity. Then they got the point. Here was something rare in the world, a society which said it wished to publicize its principles and its work, but not its individual members. The press was delighted with this attitude. I doubt that. Ever since, these friends have reported AA with an enthusiasm which the most ardent members would find hard to match. There was actually a time when the press of America thought the anonymity of AA was better for us than some of our own members did. At one point, about a hundred of our society were breaking anonymity at the public level. With perfectly good intent, these, fel- these folks declared that the principle of anonymity was horse and buggy stuff, something appropriate to AA's pioneering days. They were sure that AA could go faster and farther if it availed itself of modern public publicity methods. AA, they pointed out, included many people of local, national, international fame. Provided they were willing, and many were, why shouldn't their membership be publicized? thereby encouraging other members to join. These were plausible arguments, but happily, our friends of the writing profession disagreed with them. The Foundation wrote letters to practically every news outlet in America setting forth our public relations policy of attraction rather than promotion, and emphasizing personal anonymity as AA's greatest protection. Since that time, editors and rewrite men have repeatedly deleted names and pictures of members from AA copy. Frequently, they have reminded ambitious individuals of AA's anonymity policy. They have even sacrificed good stories to this end. The force of their cooperation has certainly helped. Only a few of AA members are left who deliberately break anonymity at the public level. This, in brief, is a process by which AA's Tradition 11 was constructed. To us, however, it represents far more than a sound public relations policy. It is more than a denial of self-seeking. This tradition is a constant and practical reminder that personal ambition has no place in AA. In it, each member becomes an active guardian of our fellowship. And there you have it, Step 11 and Tradition 11. So Tradition 11, I think, is is like most mostly pretty solid. I, I, I just don't think the anonymity thing really holds true. I can't imagine how they're even going to continue to enforce that with how public every fucking thing is about our lives. The idea that I would be potentially outed as a member for even having this podcast and having my personal details associated with this podcast is kind of baffling to me. Like it should still be. And I feel remains to be my choice on whether or not I tell people that I am an AA. It's not a fight club thing. Like what happens in AA doesn't stay in AA. All the stuff that happens, all the things that are discussed do. But the fact that I'm in the program is is my choice to be public about. Now, if again, if I yeah, if I start using that as like some way of getting, you know, public favor, if I start using that as like a, a notch on my resume, that's different. But if I tell people that I'm in AA on Facebook 
or in a podcast. I don't think that that has anything to do with breaking anonymity in the way that they're, they're insinuating. This recovery silent thing doesn't work for me anymore. We need to break the stigma around recovery. We need to break the, the stigma around drinking, around drugs. If I told people that I wasn't doing marijuana, or excuse me, doing heroin, if I wasn't smoking weed, most people are like, cool, I don't fucking care. But somehow if I say that I'm not drinking, then that needs some kind of anonymity. So, so bizarre. Still very archaic, and I don't think it's necessary anymore. Uh, so that's it. One more episode to go. Like I said, I'm going to continue to keep my socials surrounding this open. And for as long as they'll allow me to, even if they remain inactive, you guys can still reach out to me. Whoever might be listening to this, whenever you're listening to this, uh, An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA, that Facebook account, I'm just going to keep open. So you can keep reaching out to me. And... Uh, you can still send me an email at oneatheistnaa at gmail.com. Again, I appreciate everybody that's continued to listen, and I hope that you stick around for the last episode. It's going to be coming out next week. Thank you for keeping me sober one more day. Till next time.